0: This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Let's pray. Father, we do come again in the name of Jesus. and Come, Lord, thanking you. Come again asking for Your enabling grace, Father. Please, Lord, as we read uh, this passage, as, as it's read aloud and heard, please enable us to receive it, understand it. Lord, enable us to receive it for what it truly is, Your Word. And I ask, Lord, that you enable me to speak and deliver the very message you would have delivered. Please grant clarity, accuracy. And as always, Father, we pray that you open our ears to hear. Lord, use your truth. To sanctify us. And through it all may, may your name be exalted. May you be honored. Not not just in the services today, but may we take these truths with us and be committed to living for your honor and glory from this day forward by Your grace, by the power of Your Spirit within us. Lord, may may we be able to grasp, Lord, to some meaningful extent. I don't presume that we can fully understand, but Lord, may we... Understand what you would give us about the atoning work of Christ. And that it's not merely a historical event to be discussed and talked about, but that it has a profound effect in history and in our very souls. May we be amazed at Your mercy. May we be awed by Your sovereign control of all things. And Lord, may we be affected in such a way that our hearts are consumed with adoration for You. The one, true, living, merciful God. We ask all of these things, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand once again, if you would, for the reading of the passage here. We're going to read this morning from um, Matthew 26. Picking up uh, where we left off last week in verse 47, Matthew twenty-six forty-seven, and I'm just going to read um, <clears throat> down through verse 56. Matthew 26, verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, Do what you came to do. Then they came up, laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish By the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out? as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. I want to really kind of focus in this morning uh, on a couple of verses from the passage we just read primarily. And we'll kind of go back through this. But I I just want us to have in the forefronts of our mind, uh, especially verses 54 and 56, Verse 54, but how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? That's pretty strong language there Jesus is using. It must be so. The, the suffering that we, we've been talking about, and especially last Sunday night, talking about the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is now um, moving into this, this hour that He has been speaking about where He would be delivered up, suffer at the hands of sinners, Ultimately be crucified, die, and then on the third day rise again. It must be so. And boy, that, that ought to really resonate after, uh, again, after last Sunday night. We, we, we discussed uh, um, Jesus' prayer. Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from Me. This cup referring to the suffering that He's about to endure. Not just the physical pain, and again, we discussed that, but, but the, the taking on Himself the wrath of His Holy Father. If there be any other way, let this cup pass from Me. And evidently, this is the way that it must be. And so Jesus says that Here. It, it is necessary, verse 54. It must. That's the word must there. A day. It, that is, it is necessary. It must be so. And then again, verse 56. But all this has taken place that. That is a very important word. <laughs> all this has taken place that, or so that, you could say. So that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. So, I know this is um, um, not a surprising thought here, but maybe something we don't think uh, about enough. And so I want us to, to uh, kind of focus on this morning the fact that all the way through this, Jesus is in control. And I want you to notice too his his demeanor here. We're going to, as we read through the passage, we'll see it. But last week he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he is deeply troubled, pouring out his soul in prayer. He says to the disciples, "My soul is is sorrowful, troubled, even to the point of death." And we're told in another place that he was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, and and. Again, we discussed all that last Sunday night. There's much passion, much agony in his praying. And now, what you see here is an amazing calm. What you see here is someone who is in control. Not not worried, not not concerned that things might take a turn that they shouldn't take. In fact, um, to some extent, I mean, he's, he's he's not. God is ordering all things. Christ is ordering all things. But to some extent, he's even doing that verbally here. I mean, he's giving commands throughout some of this, which I've always found intriguing. Very interesting. So let me just again, as a backdrop, let me read another passage here. You don't have to turn there unless you just want to. Um, but this is John ten seventeen and eighteen. Jesus says this in John ten seventeen and eighteen. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. So you notice the language there. There's there's nothing about happenstance, coincidence, hope so, maybe so. Jesus knows what He's here for. He knows what He's going to do. I lay down my life. So again, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. That's an incredible statement. Now, any one of us in this room, I don't know whether we would or not, but I mean we could. Any one of us in this room could say, like Peter did and the other disciples, I am willing to die. And sometimes we... When we talk about laying our lives down, that's that's what we have behind that. That's what we mean by it. I'm I'm willing to die. I'm willing to lay down my life. In other words, I, I would give it. I would offer it willingly. But that's really a different thing from being in control of the whole situation. It's, it's quite a different thing. <laughs> what Jesus... Is talking about here. Now, his willingness is important. And again, we saw that uh, emphasized in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. But, but it's not a mere willingness. He's, he's saying in John 10, and I, I think implying in, this, in the Matthew passage, that he's, he's doing this. He's very active in what is taking place. It's it's not a passive role. I lay down my life. I have, and notice how he emphasizes his ability, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. He's very active. I remember when Timothy McVeigh was executed and he, he granted a uh, at least one, I remember, uh, uh, interview prior to that. And he made some statements about... Um, his being in control. In other words, he, he, he committed the crime knowing that uh, he would probably receive the death sentence. When he was handed the death sentence, he felt like everything that was taking place was, was pretty much going as planned. And, and he made a similar statement, you know, that he, in other words, I'm, uh, uh, I had planned to die this way and, and this is the way it's going to happen. And uh, at his death, quoted the, uh, the, the poem, the name of which slips my mind at the moment, but talks about being the, the captain of my own soul. And he pretended a, uh, a, a sovereignty, if you will, over his death experience, which, in all honesty, he had no control over. It was more like the scenario I was talking about earlier. He may have been willing to die for the crime that he had done. I mean, maybe he fully understood when he committed the crime that it was probably going to meet the death penalty, and he was willing to suffer that penalty. But when they strapped him to the bed, somebody put him to death. He had no hand in that. No control. He was completely deluded. The whole thing could have been botched. I mean, it's possible. Or what if they said, you know, we, we were supposed to do it at 5 till, but we're going to go ahead and wait till the top of the hour? Or what if they came and got him 30 minutes early? I mean, he didn't have the control that he thought he had. Jesus, on the other hand, is fully in control here, and that's that's what I want us to keep in mind. This is not an accident. You can say, in one sense, this is a tragedy. An honest man is taken and given a mockery of a trial, given the death sentence which he doesn't deserve. Well, so yeah, there's there's an aspect, a tragic aspect of it. But if we mean by tragedy that it's an accident, it's, it's, we should understand it's, it's not an accident at all. This, this is God's will being carried out. Now, let's go back to verse 47. While he was still speaking. So, this is right at the end of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where he has, he has just been pouring out his soul. Three times he prayed that this cup be taken from Him. That is, the suffering that He's about to endure. the, The taking of God's wrath upon Himself while hanging on Calvary's cross. And every time He finishes that prayer by saying, Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, Your will be done. In verse 45 and 46, he comes back for the the final time, finds the disciples asleep again. You know, and he's been trying to get them to wake up and pray with him. He finds them asleep again. And he says in verse 46, sleep and take your, uh, in verse 45 rather, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed, delivered up, is the word there. The Son of Man is delivered up into the hands of sinners. He's saying, this is it. This is the time. Then He goes on to say in verse 46, Rise, let us be going, see my betrayer is at hand. While He was speaking, that is, while He was saying those things, Judas came. Now, this this is the betrayer. That he mentions in verse 46, see my betrayer is at hand. And the author here, Matthew, uh, refers to him uh, that way also in verse 48. What a way to be known. We uh, We just saw just previous to this, where a woman is to be remembered everywhere the gospel goes into the world. She's to be remembered for her Expression of love for the Savior. And we talked about how also Judas is to be remembered as well. But <clears throat> not for his love. For his betrayal. So he's called the betrayer. My betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came. One of the twelve. It's interesting, and I, and I, already, I won't spend much time on this, but I pointed out before. But all four of the Gospel writers specifically mention that. One of the twelve. One of the twelve. This is an insider. Just, just astounding. Just amazing to me. In fact, that would be one point where you might think, here's, here's, at, least one, here's at least one point where Jesus got blindsided. He picked a man that he thought would be a loyal disciple, and he turns out to be a betrayer. But not so. Jesus knew he was the devil from the start. Jesus said in John 6 that he would lose nothing out of all that the Father's giving him, referring to uh, not only the disciples, but I think all Christians throughout the ages, but he says, I I won't lose anything, not one, except the son of perdition. He's talking about Jesus. Why is that? So that the Scriptures, are talking about Judas, and it's so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. I won't lose any except for the son of perdition, so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. And then in the Last Supper, the Passover meal, that we talked about just prior to this event also. Um, he points Judas out. Not, not publicly, but when Judas says, Lord, is it I? He says, I think it's in verse 25, um, you have said so. Yeah, verse 25. Judas. All, all of the disciples, are, when Jesus talks about his betrayer, all of the disciples say, is it I? Is it I? In verse 25, Jesus says, Judas says, is it I, Rabbi? And he says, you have said so. That's an affirmation. In other words, you say correctly. And then uh, Judas goes about to betray him. So now Judas has come, the betrayer. Verse uh, 47, while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. You've got the chief priests, the elders. We know from John that there are some uh, Roman soldiers as well. And they've come to arrest Jesus. Verse 48, now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. It might all sound a little strange, but you've you got to remember all this is taking place uh, at dark. And uh, you know they didn't have the kind of uh, kind of lighting we have today. Isn't it funny though how we we digress in some things? And uh, these bulbs you buy now uh, that they're pushing um, are you, 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 they don't light up the room. I mean it's, we're, we're, it's like going back to candlelight. But anyway, that's a side note. <laughs> or you got to wait for them to warm up. You know I mean why, why don't we just go back to coal oil lamps and uh, and candlelight? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's very dark, probably. And so Judas says, I'm, you know, I'm going to give you a sign. The one that I go up and kiss, that's just a form of greeting. He's the one. He's the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus in verse 49 at once and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Same uh, same word used when it talks uh, about the woman um, kissing his feet in Luke seven thirty eight. In other words, it's supposed to be an act of affection, a demonstration of love. And here it's it's the mark of betrayal. He kissed him, and Jesus said to him, "Friend, do what you came to do." Now, I've wondered before, and this is one of those kind of just just hopelessly wondering. I mean, we're not given this information, but you, but you, you kind of wonder, don't you, what kind of relationship Jesus and Judas had over the three and a half. Year period before this point. And I made a point of saying, uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, I guess, because again, it's emphasized here that he is one of the twelve. We know that he's one of the, the, the chosen twelve, and uh, again, that's emphasized in these accounts. He's an insider. And as we read through the gospel accounts and all the stories about the disciples doing miracles, Casting out demons, preaching the gospel. And we're never told that Judas did anything any different. Although there was a huge difference because his heart wasn't right. We are told that he was a thief and that he was stealing from the money bag. His heart wasn't right. But it seems that from, from outward appearance... He, he passed himself off as a genuine Christ lover. Now, don't get me wrong. J- Jesus was not fooled for one second. But I just find it interesting that I, I think the other disciples were. If they hadn't been, when, when, when they were sitting around the table and Jesus said, this night one of you is going to betray me, they would have all immediately pointed to Judas. Well, we know who that is. Judas. And nobody, nobody did that. We don't have any record of that happening. They all began to question themselves. Is it me? Is it me? Seems like the only two at the table that knew who the betrayer was was Jesus and Judas. But again, Jesus knew so it kinda of makes you wonder how their relationship was. At least here it appears to be cold. This this word for friend is just uh in verse fifty is is, is just the idea of like acquaintance. It's not the more intimate word "philo," where you know, like brotherly love or, or close friendship. Now, I, I love the word "brother." You know that? I mean, not as a title. You don't, you don't, you don't have to call me brother Skip. Okay, I I, I like it. I like. In fact, I call you know, I guess all the men in here brother because it's a great. Again, not a title, but but just a great way to kind of just confess the reality of what we are in Christ. You know, sister so-and-so, brothers so-and-so. Well, what a term. And then you see that in the, in the remainder of the New Testament. I love it when, when, when Saul of Tarsus, he's a brand new convert and he's taken to Ananias to be prayed for. And the first thing Ananias does is call him Brother Saul. That's great, isn't it? new life, new relationship, brother. But Jesus doesn't call him brother. Friend. Friend, do what you came for. Now, this is one of the places I was talking about where Jesus is giving commands. And if you read John's account, It's like everybody's just kind of spellbound once they get there, and and Jesus says, Who are you looking for? Who'd you come for? And they tell him, and he says, I am he. And when he says that, they all just fall back. So he asks again, and he tells them again I told you, I am he. Now, let the others go. Isn't that amazing? I mean, would you be barking out commands if you had um, hostile religious leaders and Roman soldiers face-to-face with you? I mean, they've come to arrest you. They're not happy. They, you know, they didn't come to give you a, some kind of pride. You know, you've won the sweepstakes or whatever. They've come to arrest you. I wouldn't advise it. I mean, if you get pulled over, don't start giving commands to the officer, Okay. <laughs> but Jesus has no problem with that and he's not, being, he's not being obnoxious in any way. Again, the reason I'm pointing this out is just to show He's in control. So He tells Judas, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized Him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, that's Peter. We know that because John tells us it's Peter, and also uh, he gives us the name of the high priest's servant. His name is Malchus. And Peter's having uh, a little little problem, to say the least, um, going along with God's will. Here. Things aren't working out exactly the way that Peter thought they would, in spite of the fact that Jesus has given plenty of warning. And so Peter draws his sword and takes off the ear of the high priest's servant. Now you, you say, man, he was quite a marksman with that thing. He was good with that thing, wasn't he? Well, I'm going to tell you, my, my guess is that's not what he was aiming for. <laughs> my, my guess is he was, he was trying to split his head open. <clears throat> Nevertheless, either way, he cuts his ear off. Uh, and, and, even, and Jesus heals the man's ear, even though Matthew neglects to tell us that detail here. But Jesus heals the man's ear. And then Jesus speaks to Peter in verse 52. Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Let me stop there for just a minute. I I don't think this is a call to pacifism. I, I, I don't think that, um, matter of fact, Jesus didn't say, Look, take the sword. And throw it, in the, throw it out in the sea or somewhere get rid of the thing. He doesn't say that. He says, put it back in its place. And I think, and this is a subject for another time, I'm only going to mention it here. I, I think there are times when you, when you defend yourself and your family and your right to do so. In fact, I think there are times where you'd be wrong to not do so. Well, then, why does Jesus have a problem with Judas wielding a sword, using it? Because Peter is still resisting God's will for this hour. Remember back in 16? In, in look, look back in chapter 16 for just a moment. Matthew 16. Verse 21, now, this is one of the times that Jesus predicted his suffering. And he does this four times by the time we get to uh, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 26. Um, Matthew sixteen twenty-one, Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23, Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19, and then again Matthew 26, verses 1 and 2. He predicts his suffering and death four times. He gives them detail. Here's one of them. Matthew 16:21. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, that's pretty good detail. Verse 22, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, "Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you." And Jesus says, Peter, I'm so grateful for your concern. And I'm, I'm so glad the Father has given me men to protect me in case I fall into, uh, somehow fall into the hands of sinful men. That's not at all what Jesus says, is it? Verse 23, He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You are a. a, That's strong language, isn't it? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Why? Because his mind is set on the wrong things, the things of man rather than the things of God. And that's exactly what we're seeing again play out in. Chapter 26. Jesus has already told them He's here to suffer. My betrayer is at hand. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be taken. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise again on the third day. And it is necessary. Verse 54. It must be so. This is God's will. They were just with Him in the garden where He's praying. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from Me. And obviously the answer is, there's no other way. It must be so. Now, I don't even know if it's good to speculate. Sometimes people want to say, well, couldn't, have, couldn't God have done it another way? If I mean, God is God. If He chose to do it another way, couldn't He do it another way? All I know is obviously this is the best way. This is the best way. Because he always does what is best. There wasn't any point that he had to say, well, you know what, I couldn't get it done this way. So so now we're going to have to do this cross thing. Not so. This has been the plan all along. This is God's way. So it's got to be the best way. The right way. The perfect way. It must be so. And that's what Peter's resisting. He's resisting God's will. So it's in that context that Jesus says to him, Put your sword up. You're not going to fight your way out of this thing. It's God's will. It must be so. All who take the sword will perish by the sword. We're not going to raise up an army and overthrow the Roman government. God is going to do it His way. And then in verse 53, Jesus says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels. Do you hear what Jesus is saying there? He's saying the same thing He says in John 10. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. Don't you think But I could call for help. Don't you understand that? I mean, if they're really going to take on the Roman soldiers, um, a little band of men with a few swords, <laughs> not going to accomplish a whole lot. I mean, so, Jesus, I'm. I, Jesus, said, I'm not counting on you anyway. If if I if I, don't you think if I wanted help, I could call twelve legions of angels. A legion, by the way, in in the, in the Roman army was was six thousand soldiers. So it seems that Jesus is saying, don't you know that I could immediately have seventy two thousand angels on the scene to fight for me? I don't know why he picks that number. Maybe maybe he's thinking. A thousand for each of them, you know. A thousand team up with Peter. A thousand team up with John. A thousand go with Jesus. A thousand go with... And then down the list. Six thousand, rather, for each of them. Seventy-two thousand angels. But see, the deal is, he's not looking to fight his way out of it. He's laying his life down. Do you think, again, verse 53... That I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? Presumably so, that's what Jesus says. But there's a problem with going that direction. Verse 54, how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? this this is this is the cup that he's that he must drink it must be so for the glory of god and for our salvation he he could have summoned aid but he's come to lay his life down. He's come to fulfill the scriptures. If he, if he, if he doesn't go through with it, if he doesn't do it, how will the scriptures be fulfilled? It must be so. That hour Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. You wonder why he brings that up? I mean, maybe, it's to, maybe it's to get them thinking too. Hey, yeah, why, why didn't we? Why, why didn't we seize him? There were, hey, there were times that they tried. Now, this particular week, you know, during the Passover, they, they wanted to put it off till after the feast. They weren't even able to do that. Their decision was, let's wait till after the feast, unless there be an uprising among the people, because Jesus was still very popular among the general crowds. And Jerusalem is loaded with people at this point for the Passover. And so they've already held the council and decided, let's put this thing off. But they're not running the show. I mean, again, it's just more evidence that God is orchestrating this thing. It was necessary for Christ to die during the Passover. When Jesus talks about His hour, I think He's, He's got a specific time in mind. The hour is at hand, He says back in verse 45. Meaning, this is the appointed time. This is the appointed night. Tomorrow is the appointed day. This is when it must happen. Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Then he says again, But all this has taken place that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Fulfilled. He's, he's saying, God has determined and appointed the time. it's been prophesied. the time, the way, all of it must be fulfilled. All of these things are happening, even the way that they're happening. The betrayal by an insider, it's not an accident. All these things have taken place that the scripture might be fulfilled. The fact that it happens during the Passover feast, this is the, the very night when people have slaughtered their lambs and they're partaking of the Passover, all of this has taken place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. The remainder of this verse says, then all the disciples left Him and fled. We talked about that last week, prophesied in Zechariah 13:7, and then pointed out here in this passage by Jesus, He, he says, this is what... What's going to happen tonight? Every one of you going to fall away. All of these things have taken place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Let me just give you a couple other passages that kind of kind of uh, bring that out explicitly. I would say before we close here, Acts 2 is 1. Acts 2, verse 22. This is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised Him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. (laughs) Peter says, this, this murder that you, and, and by the way, again, this is for another time, but here, here's another example of the interplay of God's sovereignty and the responsibility of man. Peter's referring to this atrocity that they've committed, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He says it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What you did, Peter's saying, is what God foreordained. Again, um, let's see here. give you at least one more here. Uh, I'll give you two more. Acts 4 here they are praying after being persecuted the church Um, in Acts 4 verse uh, 27 for truly in this city there were gathered together against you against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate again notice where Peter puts uh, where the disciples here put responsibility against your anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So 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 they're saying, um, who's to blame for the death of Jesus? Well, they've included all of us, everybody. Pontius Pilate, uh, representing the Roman government. Herod, um, he was a, 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 a leader of the, the nation of Israel, but also appointed by the, the Romans. He worked under the Roman government. Um, and then you've got included the Gentiles, all the nations, and the peoples of Israel, gathered against. You're anointed, that is Jesus, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And by the way, they begin this prayer um, by referring to God as sovereign lords. Back in verse 24, they use the term despot which in our day um, always carries the, the connotation of evil of an evil ruler. We, we, when we use the term despot, we're talking about somebody like Saddam Hussein or Adolf Hitler. But um, it, it doesn't have to have that evil connotation. It just means absolute ruler, sovereign ruler. And that's the way it's used in verse 24. So they begin the prayer by acknowledging that He is the Sovereign Lord. And then they go on to talk about how He ordained the suffering and death of Christ. Let me give you one more uh, from a sermon of Paul in Acts 13. Verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God... To us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterance of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfill them by condemning Him. Now remember what Jesus said in Matthew 26, um, that it must be so. In order to fulfill the Scriptures. Again, verse 54, how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. And again in verse 56, but all this has taken place that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And so Paul is telling uh, the people in the synagogue here in Acts 13, that these things happened in order to fulfill the Scripture. The, prophet, the, the, the prophetic utterances concerning the Christ. Now, let me before we leave that though, let me point out something interesting here. Verse 27, Acts Acts 13, verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers. Again, he puts the responsibility on the people and the rulers. But listen to what he says. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, Fulfill them by condemning him. Do you not see God's sovereignty in that statement? In other words, if, if you wanted to uh to conspire to make something happen, <laughs> you if if they were if they were trying to make prophecy come to pass, they would have to recognize Him, right? They would have to say, okay, this is the One. Now, what we need to do now is fulfill the the prophecies concerning Him. So they would need to recognize Him, and they would need to understand the utterances of the prophets. What Paul is saying is, "You, you didn't do either one. They didn't do either one. They didn't recognize Him, and they didn't understand the utterance. "...of the prophets, and yet they fulfill them." In fact, he uses the word because. "...because they did not recognize Him, nor understand the utterance of the prophets, they fulfilled them." That is, they did it in ignorance. It was God orchestrating it. It was God making it happen. It is God that's in control throughout this whole event. It is Jesus who's in control. How then should the Scriptures be fulfilled? If I don't do this, and that's what Jesus is saying, I'm doing this, it's necessary, what is it necessary for? For the Scriptures to be fulfilled, it's necessary In order for God to be glorified, because this is the way that God has chosen to be glorified, and it's necessary for our salvation. This is the means. The substitutionary, atoning death of Christ is the means by which God has chosen to save sinners. It must be so. And again, um, with John 10 in mind... Jesus is displaying His sovereign authority in voluntarily laying down His life while in control. Again, not not merely voluntarily. He's doing it willingly. But at the same time, all of this is happening according to God's plan. So, I have authority to lay it down, Jesus says. And I have authority to take it up. That's a statement of absolute authorities in full control of the whole event. And he gives us the reason in John 10. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that is at least in part what's behind verse 54 when he says it is necessary. It must be so. Yes, yes, this is the way that God has determined. This is the cup that Jesus must drink of. There's not another way. Way for what? To atone for our sins. So while the chief priests and elders and the Romans are just out to... Uh, to, To kill a man, or in the Romans case, maybe to stop an insurrectionist. And while the disciples are fleeing because they don't like the way things are working out and they're offended by Jesus and the fact that He's going to be taken, humiliated, crucified, and die. Jesus is in full control. It's evident by his demeanor, and he is he has set purpose to do what he's come to do, suffer and die, lay down his life for his sheep. Now, I don't have time for a lot of application. We're out of time. I'm just going to say this, and this is going to be it. If, if He control that event and every detail of that event, then how much is He in control of the situations that you and I are faced with? And when bad things, what we think of as bad things, evil comes into our life, let me tell you, and we wonder, you know, and people have even said, where is God in this situation? And no doubt, some, some horrific things happen. I read sometimes about Christians in other other lands and the things that they go through and the atrocities, or, or even people here, it doesn't even have to be uh, the, the context of, of Christians being persecuted. You just think about, pick up a newspaper, read about bad things that happen. And they are bad and they are sinful. But I, I submit this to you. The greatest... Atrocity, the most sinful act that was ever committed was the murder of the sinless Son of God. And it was completely within God's sovereign control. And He's in control of what we face as well. So when you go through things, think about Jesus' demeanor here. His calmness. His attitude of control. And i am just close with this quote from Spurgeon that I love. Spurgeon said once, When I set my eyes upon Jesus, peace alights on my breast like a dove. When I set my eyes upon the dove, it flies away. Would you stand please? We're just going to close with a word of prayer and dismiss. And Lord willing, um, we will gather here again at 4 p.m. I hope to see you back here. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation, which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.